the European View podcast. Your place to navigate the insights of our policy journal, brought to you by the Martin Center, with Sarah Pini. Hello, and welcome to the European View podcast, your new way to navigate through the main issues of our policy journal with valuable insights from the authors themselves. I'm Sarah Pini, a senior research officer at the Martin Center, and today we have the pleasure to welcome Sara Bruskiewicz, a research fellow in the Italian team for security, terroristic issues and managing emergencies at the Catholic University of Milan. Uh, in the latest issue of the Europe, good morning. In the latest issue of the European View, you've wrote an article on terrorism, the present, the future and the unpredictability of the threat. Uh, which uh, our audience can find, of course, on our website, martincenter.eu. And the main argument uh, of your article is that the terrorist threat today is more unpredictable than it was in the past. Can you explain why? Yeah, sure. So this can be traced back. This This can be seen as due to two main factors that have uh, unfolded or have been unfolding only recently with unparalleled intensity. The first is what we can see as the bipolarity of the threat. Uh, Indeed, on the one hand, structured or semi-structured radical groups are operating in complex or war scenarios, such as the Russian war of aggression against Ukraine. On the other hand, at the same time, in the West, we have been witnessing uh, an increase in the recrudescence of lone actor attacks that, although characterized by uh, quite a low lethality, represent a cause of concern for sure. With the current war between Israel and Hamas, the clash between the focus on international events and the need to monitor the potential consequences of these events in the West risks to be particularly severe, particularly huge. There is a risk that this dichotomy could catch experts off guard. The second factor that makes the threat particularly unpredictable nowadays is the ideological fluidity that is pervading contemporary radical uh, environments, radical milieu and radicalization trends as well. Indeed, individuals with extremely diverse ideological backgrounds borrow uh, very easily tropes, narratives, and communication strategies from other ideologies and adapt them to match their own worldviews through processes that we can call of reciprocal influencing and cross-pollination, cross-fertilization that represent completely new challenges for practitioners and for policymakers as well. This, uh, I think this idea of ideological fluidity or cross-pollination is particularly interesting because, uh, I mean, how does it work exactly? Uh, What common ground can alt-right and jihadist terrorists find? Yeah, you definitely mentioned uh, uh, one of the the couples, let's say, of extremists that have uh, been practicing this mechanism uh, the most, uh, indeed. So in the last few years, attacks have often been characterized uh, or being motivated by ideological crossovers. 
and sorts of chaotic mis- mishmash of radical influences. Even the, the FBI director a few months ago said that the recent terrorist uh, events perpetrated by so-called lone actors or lone wolves, if you like the term, can be ascribed to a weird hodgepodge of ideas that have replaced the consistent deep loyalty, uh, the doctrinal loyalty also, to to principles and worldviews that we were used to, for example, with Al-Qaeda, but partly also with with Daesh. This trend is particularly apparent when it comes to attacks carried out by groups um, active in the US, but there is no reason to believe that Europe, uh, Europe will be immune to it or will stay immune to this trend. A clear example was what happened last year in Minneapolis, uh, for instance, that's what I quote uh, very often, when a member of the Bugalo Boys was sentenced to prison for conspiring to provide material support to Hamas, which is, we know, a designated uh, foreign terrorist organization in the U.S. Now, the Bugalo movement, whose members are usually uh, referred to as Bugalo Boys, is an anti-government extremist movement born in the U.S. a few years ago, and it's extremely entrenched with U.S. politics and internal uh, instances. Okay, so such ideological cross-pollination is often reflected also in the radical discourse, in the narratives and uh, and in the tropes that are used the most. Uh, And it is not by chance that the defendant, in this case, the Bugalo Boy defendant, was member of a subgroup called, that liked to to, to be called Bujahideen, a play, a clear play on the words Bugalo and Mujahideen, fighter. Uh, in the Islamic environment and specifically in the jihadi environment. This reciprocal influencing, by the way, also works in the opposite direction, that is from from white supremacist and alt-right ideologies to jihadism. Online, for instance, far-right radicals distribute uh, ISIS uh, videos because often they value the tactical advice and the jihadist uh, passion and ruthlessness, while jihadists at the same time praise the lone wolf nature and execution of uh, some of of the most uh, cruel school shootings, for instance. So these cross-fertilization processes are increasingly uh, dynamic and might broaden the scope of the copycat mechanism that uh, has always happened partly uh, in, in in different radical landscapes. Indeed, in this case, not only does such imitation require zero interaction between the perpetrators and the new potential attackers who want to copy them, but it also no longer needs them to fully share the same ideology. That's why I believe we uh, are witnessing a step forward that makes the situation much, much more complex. In this respect, a particularly interesting phenomenon that I have the chance to to study recently is the so-called Ahrite. It's a play on the Arabic word uh, for brother, Ah, and the diverse phenomenon of the alt-right that you also mentioned in your question. And the term uh, is particularly effective, in my opinion, as it describes contemporary online communities and individuals who appropriate features, tropes, and other ideological content traditionally 
belonging to the alt-right, but they use it in this case to support and spread values and opinion that are actually proper uh, and traditional to the uh, jihadi landscape and range from, um, again, values and opinions that are extremely reactionary to, uh, to open radical messaging. A big part of the Akharite, for instance, uh, is interested in hate speech practices. And um, most of them, most of their members, do not normally post explicitly violent content. However, in a minority of cases, this violent stance is much more apparent and includes open support for radical movements. The common ground in this case between the alt-right and young um, disenfranchised Islamists and Islamist sympathizers um, who contribute to creating the, the Akhirite milieu revolves around, pivots around hate for political correctness and mainstream values, but also it revolves around mockery of the alleged feminization of the West and Western men. Um, as well as on the, on the tendency to place continuous blame on feminism, for instance. So this is just to quote some of the uh, common grounds that these online users have been finding in the last uh, few years. These features uh, reveal indeed the proximity of the Akhrite tropes to, to other um, evolving online ecosystem. It, uh, the first that comes to my mind is the so-called Manosphere, for example, which is a diverse array of websites, blogs, and online communities, gatherings to express um, varying degrees of misogynistic views. They are absolutely not necessarily violent, uh, but their rhetoric uh, can be. And that's why it should be monitored. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, now, you wrote your article before 7 of October, but uh, of course you mentioned it in, uh, in the beginning because it's hard to speak of terrorism uh, without, uh, uh, without mentioning uh, uh, what is happening in Israel. Um, this attack took Israel by, by surprise. So I was wondering, how could one of the best intelligence services in the world fail to see the signals of such a large-scale plot. Is this maybe also linked to this new uh, unpredictability of the threat that you speak about? I believe it can. Uh, this can be definitely linked to the unpredictability uh, that we are talking about, uh, or we were talking about even long before October 7th, and even more, it could be linked to the struggle of governments to keep pace with this fast, fast-evolving unpredictability. Um, back to October 7th, we should remember that intelligence, an intelligence failure is probably a series of mistakes or of smaller failures that add up and somehow uh, leading to a disaster and not a single uh, thing that, uh, that went wrong. This <coughs> and the fact that we still don't have the full picture of what happened makes it hard to understand the details of, of those mistakes. Certainly, Hamas staged a um, multi-layered uh, assault that takes months to plan and to execute. And according to many voices, there were also external forces that helped plan and fund it. So missing it um, was a huge failure. 
most likely uh, Israeli intelligence and IDF did issue warnings, uh, were aware of the potential dangers. But often these warnings can only be uh, general and quite generic rather than specific. And this may, may result in the fact that not much more could be done, as cynical as, uh, as it could, could sound. An example that is being appropriately used uh, to, to talk about this, to express this point of view, uh, is what happened in August 2001, so shortly before 9-11, when CIA analysts informed the government that the threat of a bin Laden attack in the U.S. remained uh, both, um, the words were both current and serious. But President Bush, uh, from this briefing, understood that Al-Qaeda was dangerous, which is something that he had known since long before. So, in other words, the intelligence community knew plotting was ongoing, but the warning was too general to result, to result in, in preventive and in decisive action or in improving defenses in a targeted way. Policymakers, it's their right and their duty, I guess, often expect precision. An attack with these characteristics will occur on that day, in that place, etc. But obtaining this is extremely rare. So uh, the Hamas assault on Israel, according to several experts, um, could be seen as, uh, as a case of non-specific warning more than uh, total silence before the disaster. That's uh, what I meant uh, so far. Uh, more broadly, there might have been different kinds of poor assessments, poor assessments of Hamas capabilities, and at the same time, poor assessment and overestimating of the effectiveness of Israeli uh, security services. In addition, let's not forget that Hamas proved uh, remarkable adaptation skills as they most likely avoided cell phones and email and strongly limited communication. Adaptation skills that I would add is something typical of uh, strong terrorist groups more than uh, semi-terrorist slash uh, political movements. So that's something that brings Hamas closer, even closer to, to terrorism in, uh, in, in, this, in this context. Okay, thank you. Uh, now, we saw Hamas attack and, uh, and then Israel's response uh, had an immediate spillover effect in Europe. Uh, in Brussels, we, uh, we know there was the, this shooting and then uh, a bit everywhere in Europe, there was a multiplication of racist or anti-Semitic acts. Uh, everywhere in Europe, but not everywhere the same. So what factors can explain why some of our countries are more affected than others? And maybe other best practices that we can share? Okay, so uh, yeah, you are completely right. We are witnessing a spike of anti-Semitic acts all over Europe. Uh, and at the same time, anyway, there were also episodes of Islamophobia and anti-Arab violence, uh, not only in Europe. A few days ago, a man shot three Palestinian students in Vermont, in the US, in what so far looks like a hate crime. Uh, there are different factors that contribute to explain some countries, why some countries, even among Western European countries, are more affected than others. Um, when talking about radicalization in general, so not only the current uh, anti-Semitic uh, spike, um, 
many factors are, are mentioned. And uh, these factors range from different demographic features, for example, more migrants, as, as simple as it is, more migrants from Muslim-majority countries, and the higher percentage of second, third, and even fourth generations of migrants. And it is a fact, it's cons- there is universal consensus uh, on the idea that the, the struggle to configure your own uh, in-between identity can make you more vulnerable to radicalization. Uh, that's why uh, second and third generations were particularly involved in violent acts compared to first generations in the last few years. Um, they range from these to a different, bigger colonial past, for instance, for example, that of France or uh, England compared to the one of Italy. Another factor is the presence or absence of the so-called ghetto neighborhoods, which might contribute to further radicalization, according to some, uh, to some experts in the field. An additional feature that, uh, that some mention uh, is the potentially effective work of Muslim institutions from specific countries that might be able to provide directly or indirectly a bulwark against radicalization through their action, through their presence and visibility in uh, a specific Western European country or uh, or with their absence from another European country. So, in other words, the factors are many. There are no countries with the exact same situation, but sharing best practices within Western Europe and beyond uh, is mandatory if we want to learn what might work and what cannot work here because it was just designed in other contexts and for other contexts. Okay, thank, thank you very much, uh, Sarah, for joining us and thank you for this uh, interesting uh, analysis. And for those who are listening in, make sure to like, comment and subscribe and discover all the interesting insights of the European view on martincenter.eu and on our social media channels. Thank you and stay tuned for more. This was the European View podcast, your place to navigate the insights of our policy journal. Follow the Martin Centre for more.